Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jeff Coker to our show. Dr. Coker is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. Hi, Jeff. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's start off with you talking a little bit about Shenandoah University and why students select your institution and also your college. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Shenandoah University uh, is a university with a long history. We've, uh, we're about to uh, celebrate our sesquicentennial in a few years. Uh, uh, our current location, as you said, was in Winchester, Virginia. We moved here in 1960. Uh, we are a comprehensive private university of about 4,000 students. Uh, a little bit more than half of that is undergraduate. Uh, the remainder is graduate. Uh, we have uh, a, a wide array of programs. Uh, uh, we, of course, have the arts and sciences and a liberal arts uh, a base of programs, but we also have uh, strengths in our professional graduate programs. Uh, some of our hallmark programs, for example, are in uh, uh, the graduate health professions. Uh, we have a global MBA program. Uh, we have new tech programs, and uh, well, I'm sure we'll get into that discussion uh, in our discussion today. Uh, and we also have Shenandoah Conservatory, which is a nationally known uh, school for the performing arts that gives this university and really the Winchester community uh, a, a different sort of feel uh, with a vibrance in the arts. We are um, about 70 miles northwest of Washington, D.C., in the, the northern end of the Shenandoah Valley. And uh, as I talk to you on this October day, I'm looking out in the the trees have just started changing color here. And so it's a really pretty part of the country. So talk about your performing arts then. So, so I assume the community is heavily involved coming to campus and, and enjoying oh, ab Absolutely. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of a remarkable thing that pretty much any given night, uh, there's some sort of uh, recital performance. Uh, our musical theater program is, uh, you know, one of the tops in the nation. Uh, and so has, you know, ongoing performances throughout the year. Uh, we have a summer musical program that uh, brings in folks from all over the country, including uh, performers from Broadway. So it's, it, it's kind of a, an element uh, that, you know, you think about college towns and what they offer communities, but um, it offers a, a, a special component to life here in the Valley. Sounds like so much fun. Um, it is. Well, what's new at your college? Wow, what's new? So uh, a <laughs> lot. We are a uh, we're, we're an energetic place to be sure. And uh, uh, I've been here uh, for this is my eighth year at the university, and uh, we've developed so many new programs just in the past few years. Um, we have uh, an entire new division in the College of Arts and Sciences, the Division of Applied Technology, uh, which is home to um, uh, an array of programs, uh, information technology, cybersecurity, and computer science. Um, uh, we were one of the first universities in the country to offer a baccalaureate degree in uh, augmented and virtual reality. Uh, we are starting a major in artificial intelligence. 
And uh, over in the business school, but kind of related to uh, uh, the division is an esports program, one of the very first esports management programs in the country. Uh, and so there's been a lot of activity in this space, which is um, you know, all new and all you know, adding to uh, Shenandoah's kind of comprehensive profile. We like to say that you know, we, we sort of bring together uh, a climate of a small liberal arts college, but the diversity of programs of a, of a comprehensive university. And, and I think that's kind of a, uh, an interesting place to be. Uh, we are uh, talking about and will fairly soon begin to launch engineering programs for the first time. And they'll be in uh, the Division of Applied Technology also. And so just a lot of uh, new programs that are coming online. And uh, for a dean in this situation, it's, uh, it's exciting uh, to be on the front end of developing in these areas that we know are in high demand. Uh, uh, and so it's been, uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a fun run here for sure. You know, uh, when I was just getting ready to step down and retire as a dean, our university was just talking about esports. So, can you elaborate a little bit more of what that is? Absolutely. So, we started with an esports team, and uh, we were an early adopter there. There were a few universities that had adopted teams, but uh, ours started, and uh, one of our faculty members, uh, who was you know sort of shepherding the creation of the team. Uh, started, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, esports is such a rapidly growing global industry that giving the opportunity for students to come in and, and, and connect with the growth of this industry uh, from an educational standpoint uh, was such a great idea. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's a program that kind of connects with uh, all elements of this of the of the uh, of esports uh, it's commerce it's uh, it's marketing uh, it's performance it's recruitment of players um, admittedly Dave I think I'm closer we're closer of age and generation I have no idea <laughs> right what what a huge and emerging uh, uh, industry this is um, yeah. uh, but but it's it's fun to to understand I have a um, uh, a daughter who's a junior in high school. And so I rely on her to explain to me a lot of times what I should be paying attention to yeah. in this space. Yeah. 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 I, it's absolutely colleges need to pay attention to their audience for sure. And, and those right. are the, those are your customers. That's right. um, well, let's talk a little bit about yourself uh, and the path that led you to become the Dean of the college of arts and sciences. Sure. Um, I, I don't think my, story is really that unusual or compelling. I started out uh, as an historian uh, at a university in Tennessee and, um, you know, enjoyed the life of a faculty member. And uh, uh, once tenured, was given the opportunity to chair the history department, uh, found that, you know, I enjoyed it. Uh, uh, I thought there were, I brought some strengths to the position. We were able to do some, uh, some good uh, things in the department, and then was invited to move into the provost's office as an associate provost overseeing uh, general education, core curriculum, uh, university advising, uh, those sorts of undergraduate studies elements, and did that for a few years, and then moved to a university in Florida where I took on the role of dean for undergraduate studies and, and enjoyed that. Um, 
and in both of those positions, Dave, I was, you know, as you know, those are positions that give one an opportunity to work with uh, deans and faculty across the university, um, which was was fantastic. It was a great experience to understand, you know, sort of the cultures uh, and uh, contexts of different areas. But I was uh, sort of missing my old peeps. Uh, I, I was missing working with faculty <laughs> in arts and sciences. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm passionate about the liberal arts and about the arts and sciences. And so I decided that I wanted to find a place where I could uh, go and help promote those programs and promote uh, the arts and sciences generally. And uh, so came up here uh, and have thoroughly enjoyed it here. Uh, it's a great place to work and a great place to be. So, so how long have you been the dean there? Uh, this I've just finished my eighth, seventh year. So I'm starting year eight. Yeah. So. So how are you doing right now? I mean, you know, like I said, I was leaving when the pandemic was just coming on. So what's it like being a, an academic leader in fall 2022 from what you've just gone through? It's a great question. Uh, I can tell you that it's a lot better, I think, this year than it was the last couple of years. <laughs> That's uh, a good answer. We, um, uh, you know, as all universities, and I, you've had this conversation with others, you know, the, the two hardest years that I've experienced uh, in education. Um, we saw uh, a lot of challenges, but we actually saw a lot of really uh, uh, impressive success stories too. Um, our faculty, our willingness to, you know, as everyone did, move online with such immediacy in the spring and mobilize ourselves in the summer. When we came back in that first fall, we arranged ourselves with sort of a, a flexible model of delivery where we could bring as many students into the classroom as we could, uh, but also teach simultaneously online. Uh, our faculty worked so hard to do that. Uh, and I'm so proud of being at an institution where people worked the way they did. Um, I think one of the interesting things coming out of all of that is, um, well, here's a statistic for you. Uh, before the pandemic, I was looking at our numbers in arts and sciences, fewer than 10% for sure. I think it was four or 5% of our courses being offered were something other than face-to-face, -face, you know, mm. either fully online or hybrid. Uh, this semester, it's, uh, I think it's 38% of our course offerings are hybrid blended, uh, some fully online, but you know, really focusing on the uh, incorporation of uh, hybrid and blended delivery, it's, it's been a real sea change for the university. And it's allowing for us, I think, to uh, be more flexible and responsive to the needs of students in ways that three years ago, we couldn't have these conversations with faculty because it, it, we, just the technology wasn't there and the conversancy wasn't there. And so, um, I'm, I'm very bullish on uh, the future, both here and in higher ed, because I think, um, you know, it has provided us an opportunity to figure out how we can leverage technology in the right ways. Well, what's been your proudest moments so far at Shenandoah? I think, I think that more than anything. Mm -hmm. I think seeing the campus community mobilize, um, and not only just the campus community, Dave, but really the, the entire region, Shenandoah, uh, became a hub for vaccinations, uh, partnering with uh, the Virginia State Regional Health Authorities and uh, the University Hospital System here. 
And I tell you, it was um, it was just a cool institutional wide effort. We had administrators and faculty driving golf carts, uh, patients from parking lots into the place. Uh, our performing arts students from the conservatory were playing live music during the vaccination clinics and get a lot of feedback from the community saying that, you know, they, you know, it's not something pleasant to go and do, right? Uh, but it was really kind of a neat thing to see the way this campus can rally around uh, an issue like that. And so um, I, I think that was one of the, the proudest moments, moments of my career, really. Um, I'm proud of these new programs we're building, you know, um, we were talking about this just the other day that, you know, this, uh, this school is looking a lot different than it did a decade ago. And, um, you know, I think that's primarily to um, uh, administrators like me who understand the need to get talented people together and then get out of their way uh, to build, to build new programs. And, uh, but it's exciting and it, it's yeah. an exciting time to be in higher ed for sure. Well, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an academic leader? Well, uh, well, related to that, I guess, Dave, um, universities, colleges and universities, uh, maybe this is an obvious thing to say, are full of really smart, talented people. And they're all here for the right reasons. They're passionate about education. They're passionate about students they all tend to want to see the institution succeed. And you know, if you start with that assumption, then you realize that one of the most important things that a leader in this context, uh, in this environment can do is to bring those people together and empower them uh, to fulfill their vision. Uh, and so I'm very much a, a proponent of what might be called servant leadership in that regard. Uh, and that, that took me a while to learn, you know, I have all of my ideas and, you know, for a while there, I thought they were all the best ideas, but uh, uh, I, I think that that is one of the lessons I've learned a lot. Um, another one is that, and I suppose related to that, we as leaders tend to focus on problems uh, and challenges. I mean, you know, my agenda every day as yours was at one time was putting out fires and troubleshooting and and uh, dealing with the negatives. Um, and I, I think it's important for academic leaders to be mindful of the need to celebrate the victories and the positives that, um, uh, it, that can be overlooked if we're not careful. And, and so I do try as much as I can to uh, be mindful of celebrating the things that we do well. Amen, I agree. I think, you know, when times get a little bit tough, you just hate to keep talking about all the negative things. You still need to celebrate the positive things. So that's, that's a great, great um, topic that you're starting to bring up. So tell me with that said, how, how do you celebrate those successes? That's a great question. And we're looking for more and more ways to do so. I think one is just uh, articulating, articulating them, communicating them, uh, at our faculty meetings, uh, our faculty across arts and sciences meets once a month, and I make sure that in those meetings that, you know, any faculty member who has, uh, uh, you know, maybe done some publishing or an award or anything like that, make sure that that gets communicated to the rest of the faculty, uh, working with our marketing communications office to make sure that 
you know, our faculty are recognized uh, for their accomplishments. Now with social media, it's so much easier to get those messages out also. Uh, it's extraordinary sometimes um, to me what just that small amount of recognition uh, can do for folks. Um, and another thing too is to be mindful of those folks who've had success that going to them to get their insight and perspective on things uh, 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 is also a way of recognizing their achievements as well. Um, so, but we're always looking for more uh, ways that we can celebrate the faculty. And we've been engaged in that conversation since I've been here about how we can better give faculty uh, uh, that recognition that they deserve. So when, we, so when we look at academic leaders or sp specifically uh, college deans, what do you think are the most important qualities someone should bring to that job? I think for me at least, uh, an ability to listen, uh, an ability to uh, lead with empathy, um, more than anything, you know, in the, the opportunities that I've had to offer advice to new chairs or new deans, I tell them the first thing you should do is just spend some time uh, with your ear to the ground, uh, understand the people, again, understand what the organization already does well, uh, and don't, don't anticipate or make assumptions until you've really got to understand, you've been able to understand the context of the community. And, um, uh, and I, I think that, for me at least, that's what makes an effective leader, is someone who spends time understanding uh, um, perspectives and motivations for the people around them. Okay, well, what, let's switch topics. What do you think are the major challenges that colleges and universities will face over the next five to 10 years? I think uh, accessibility, uh, I think is the, the primary, for me at least, uh, it's a looming challenge out there. Um, you know, we, you and I are, are probably could tell the same story. Uh, I went to, a, um, to the flagship university in my state in the 80s, Dave, and I think my freshman tuition, uh, my first year was $700. And um, uh, I come from a working class family. My dad and I lived together when I graduated from high school, first generation college student. Uh, and even, even at that price, it was a stretch. It was a stretch to have raise the money to live in the dorm the freshman year. And I worked summers, um, but we were able to get it done. And for most of us uh, in, that, in, in that context, uh, higher education was obtainable. It was accessible. And you, you know, I mean, what we've seen in the last half century is increasingly that becoming almost out of reach uh, for a population of Americans. And that, that concerns me a great deal. Um, uh, you know, the, the notion of higher ed as a public good um, uh, is something that I, I think the next generation uh, is really gonna have to confront to understand uh, how we meet the challenges uh, of the next century. And in some ways, as an historian, I sort of think about it this way, that the, the concept of public accessible education really exploded around, you know, right after the Civil War. Uh, it's been around for about a century and a half. And uh, I think 
you know, a couple of generations ago, we just sort of took for granted that that's how we think about education. And it's, it's increasingly becoming clear that it's, it's not automatic. Um, with states divesting from their state systems and uh, 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 with rising prices, uh, uh, this, is, this is a real challenge. And I think connected to that, um, you know, we all read in the press the growing skepticism in high, of higher education. And I actually think those two things are related. Um, uh, um, you know, I, I've seen surveys that suggest you know, even now more than 90% of parents are asked, you know, they, they want their kids to go to college. Uh, I think we still believe uh, in the idea of a college degree in this country. And yet, because of the costs, uh, because of the concerns about accessibility, you know, to, to pull in a phrase from business, the return on investment I think is coming under question. And so this, this question of affordability and accessibility is one that we really have to, I, I think, collectively address uh, in the coming years. Yeah, that, that's a good point. What's, what do you think has been learned about online education since the pandemic? And how do you see this platform evolving for both faculty and students? It's a great question. Um, in, in ways, I think we sort of learned what we already knew. And that is that uh, effective teaching uh, can happen in any modality. Uh, and well, frankly, poor teaching can happen in any modality. That uh, online education isn't a monolithic thing. And that to some degree, uh, uh, remote learning and remote teaching requires the same demands as a well-designed face-to-face uh, -face class, you know, um, uh, curriculum and design at the front end to, to think about the learners you're, you're working with, uh, effective teaching strategies, uh, pedagogy to, to, to fit the needs of those students, and then authentic assessments for those students. That's how face-to-face -face teaching has been. And uh, I think the same is true, whether it's uh, fully online or a blended course. And um, I think most faculty during the pandemic, when they flipped on the Zoom screen and started teaching, uh, uh, it probably didn't go as well as it did the second time they did it. And it probably went better the third time. And so I think one of the lessons for me has been that it's not about the technology, it's about how we use the technology in the right way. Um, and we're having um, great conversations here on our campus about how we design curriculum in a hybrid uh, and uh, uh, online setting. Uh, we've been recently partnering with um, uh, Minerva, uh, which is a uh, Minerva University, which is um, uh, helping guide us through curriculum design, both at the course level and at the program level for how to really effectively design uh, uh, remote uh, courses and remote programs. You know, do you think also today students kind of demand that? In other words, this is what they're used, they want this. I don't, I don't know if we can go back to how we were three or four years ago. I think that's right. I think we have a real challenge of trying to understand what engagement means to this generation of students. Um, uh, I know from a lot of my faculty colleagues, a lot of them talked about uh, during, during the pandemic when they were teaching uh, remotely that 
they weren't sure whether their students were being engaged. You know, you and I, you know, you can see someone on a Zoom screen and we can, you know, we can see that we're engaging with one another. But if you have 20 right. students on screen and some of them have their screens turned off, uh, it's hard to get that, that feeling or that sense of engagement that you have. And I think a, a, in, a, in, a, in a classroom, physical classroom space. So I think we have to think through how engagement happens with this generation of students, because I think in some ways it happens a bit differently than it did maybe a generation two or ago. Um, and I don't have the answers to that, but I think uh, that's part of the question is that uh, these students spend so much more time in an online environment than, than we did growing up. And so I, I, I think you're right. I think that it, they do uh, come at this in a, in a different way. Well, you know, non-traditional students sometimes struggle more at traditional universities. So what can be done to serve this specific student population better? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, uh, teach non-traditionals uh, here and there in my career. And I've always, um, I've always it really enjoyed it because um, I think anyone who has worked with uh, older students, working students know that they, they come to uh, uh, education with uh, uh, a different set of experiences, uh, a broader context, uh, um, oftentimes a, a stronger commitment uh, to their work. But there are these challenges. Um, anybody, uh, if you know of anyone who has completed a degree while they're working full time or raising children, you know what, what a demand that is. And that you know, the, the, the demand of working throughout the day and then, you know, spending your evenings devoted to study is, is a real challenge. I think one of the things that we are starting to do and are starting to do better is just appreciating the need for flexibility. Uh, that, you know, for example, we always tend to think of education in these three credit hour clusters. Um, uh, yeah. And I'm offering my evening course from seven to 9.30 for any working adult who wants to come to campus to do it, appreciating the fact that maybe there are more flexible modalities that allow for these folks to, to get education uh, in a way that works for them. And another part of it too is um, thinking through, I think more strategically, and, and uh, uh, we're beginning to have these conversations at Shenandoah about how we recognize and reward uh, uh, professional experiences as part of a degree. Um, I was having a conversation um, with a veterans organization last week, and we were talking about, you know, um, someone who maybe has served in the military for 10 or 15 years and uh, wants to come back and, and, and finish a degree, how much of the professional experience of that environment could translate into, you know, some aspect of the curriculum uh, that we're offering here. And I think it's, a, it's upon us to figure out how to draw those lines between professional experiences and the curriculum that we have. Um, I think those are a couple of strategies that I think that we can uh, um, uh, incorporate. You know, I saw an article the other day that said something like, um, there are 39 million Americans that uh, have some college uh, and could use some kind of, some amount of upskilling or, uh, or finishing a degree. And you know, we see in 
uh, the higher ed press, uh, the, these discussions of what they're calling the demographic cliff, yeah. right? That the, the traditional college age population is going to be in decline in the, in the coming years. Uh, it, it, that may or may not be true. It's, it was supposed to happen before and it, it didn't quite happen. Uh, but whether it's a cliff or a shift, you know, I think um, colleges and universities have a, a lot of opportunity to reach a lot of students out there who need education. And it's to some degree, I think it's a moral imperative that we seek out those students and try to meet them where they are uh, to provide education for them. Point. Um, a lot of higher ed institutions are now focusing their attention on the mental health of students. What can campuses do to tackle this problem? You know, I, in my career, this I, I've, I've not seen anything like it in the last couple of years, this, this rise of mental health issues, uh, both on campus, but in the broader community. Um, we're looking at different ways that we can address it. Uh, in the community, I think in, in the Northern Shenandoah Valley, there's a real need for uh, increasing support for um, mental health. And uh, so and we, we're working on developing a master's in mental health counseling for that very reason, so that we can start to try to meet the needs uh, of the region. Here on campus, one of the things that we are, are working on is developing a peer mentoring program. Uh, we're calling it the Healthy Hornets. Uh, we're Shenandoah, we're the Hornets here. And, and uh, uh, you know, upper division students, uh, graduate students uh, who are willing to uh, be cohorted to, uh, you know, come together to reflect upon how they can just serve as a touch point, a communication point, a role model, uh, a sounding board, particularly for first and second year students, uh, and and matching up our our incoming students uh, with a mentor. Um, it's not none of these are going to be singular answers to the problem, but I think looking for those strategies that we can uh, provide students for support uh, is going to be critical. Um, we um, uh, we're finding, I think, increasingly that we used to focus so much on uh, academic performance as uh, the primary sort of risk indicator for a student uh, not progressing. But increasingly, I think we're seeing mental health um, as, as more central to that. Um, and so I, I wish we had you know, an easy set of answers for this, but I think the bottom line is that institutions really do have to look at it institutionally and, and locate, you know, kind of collaborations across all units to try to address this. Well, here's a fun question. If you had any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it? Do you want a list or uh, could I? <laughs> you, it's, it's, a, it's a dream list. I, I tell you, I wish somebody would ask me that one day. I, 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 I sure had, no I had kidding, a list. Right, right. Uh, I think first and foremost, uh, I, I would target uh, resources that would help provide our students with experiences that uh, they can't otherwise have. So for example, here at SU, we have a very vibrant uh, study abroad program. Mm. Um, we have this really cool program every spring break, it's called the Global Citizenship Project, where the university funds a week-long trip for students to go someplace abroad 
and uh, oh, cool. it's, it's through an application process and they don't know where they're going until there's a big reveal to find out where they're going. And it's just a, a cool, cool thing. And most of these students will, it'll be the first time they've been out of the country. For many of them, it's the first time they've been on an airplane. It's, it's just a tremendous experience. And so, you know, resources to support that, resources to support getting students off campus so that they can do research, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, travel to a professional conference or an academic conference to, to get an experience of, of what the world looks like beyond college, those kinds of things. Um, I think that would be first and foremost, I, I, I could put that money to good use there for sure. That, that sounds like so much fun. Gosh, I can't believe that. So they, so they show up and they don't even know eventually where they're going to end up until they hear your head. Until, the, until they're, yeah, they're accepted into the program and then they show up and it's, it's typically a faculty member uh, or two that travel with a group. And uh, we've had some really interesting reveals where um, the countries that are announced that no one's really sure exactly where they are. Uh, <laughs> That sounds like so much fun. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Here's my last question. Um, do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Admittedly, I'm, I, I don't read a lot in that space of sort of organizational leadership and management. Um, uh, but a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, as an historian, I'm not sure if you're familiar with... Um, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's history of Lincoln uh, and his advisors um, that came out it, remarkably. It's probably been 10 or 15 years now uh, uh, since it came out. Is, is that Lincoln on leadership? That's not Lincoln on leadership. It's, um, uh, I'd have to, to recall the name of it. Um, uh, or I can just look it up on my phone here. Um, but anyway, so it's a history of um, how uh, Lincoln managed the crises of the Civil War surrounded by uh, his advisors, his generals, uh, uh, team of rivals is the book. And I remember, and uh, she's just a fantastic writer, first of all, uh, but she describes, you know, Abraham Lincoln as a man who is surrounded by extraordinarily talented people, uh, uh, some very powerful individuals, uh, political figures, military figures. Um, and he has to navigate both the crisis at hand and also the egos and abilities of this group of advisors. And the way she describes his ability to you know, manage through empathy and through diplomacy and uh, frankly, through um, kind of political strategy, making sure that this group of people work together um, it, because there are so many opportunities where the whole thing could have fallen apart. And it, it did have an impact on how I think about, as I, I think I said at the beginning of the conversation that, you know, I work with a lot of very talented people who are all well-meaning, some with very strong personalities, and that to some degree, a leader's job is to get that team to work effectively. And um, so that, that, that's had an effect on me, uh, and it's a great read. Um, another thing 
it's a little out there, is uh, uh, the writings of Marcus Aurelius, uh, who I stumbled across about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, uh, particularly the meditations. Every once in a while, I go back and, uh, and revisit uh, what Aurelius has to say about leadership. And, um, you know, the primary lessons that I've always taken from those writings are, you know, first of all, uh, the need for humility. Uh, but then maybe the most important message is that we, we shouldn't focus on those things we can't change. Uh, and that we should spend our time focused on those things that we have, we're in a position to, to improve or to, to, to make better. Uh, it, it's the, the, the lessons, the maxims, I think they're just good centering lessons uh, for anyone who's in a position of decision-making. So, um, so that's a couple of thoughts. Oh, great. Those yeah. are, those are two great suggestions. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, and, and, and thanks to you, Dave, for this program. Uh, you know, I, I, having the opportunity to listen to uh, some of your other programs uh, and get a, a, a sense of what's happening out there in higher education uh, and the diversity of voices that you're bringing in at different kinds of institutions. Um, uh, I've already been, you know, I've been recommending your podcast to others. I think you're, um, you're doing a great service uh, for higher education. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.